Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 127 with my friend, John Kuhn. John was introduced to me through a mutual friend and former podcast guest, which we talk about there in the beginning, and has uh, just a great story. He just got off a crazy year. Well, I'll let him tell. I'm not going to. I've been giving away stuff in the intro. Fascinating guy, super smart individual with a lot of uh, really great, uh, I don't want to call them passion projects. He does a lot of cool stuff. All of them on YouTube. He'll talk about it. I will let you get to it, though, and then talk to you at the end of the episode. All right. So without further ado, here's my friend, John. You and I have lots in common. My request is sent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? That's so stupid. Oh, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving any of this in. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I guess let's start out with how I how I typically start out with, which is, hi, um, I don't know you. but I mean, I kind of know you. I usually start out with how I know people. And I, I met you through uh, Leslie Bailey, episode 30. Um <laughs> big fan of Leslie, but she recommended that we connect. I don't even remember what it was based on. I think it was just based on like the shit that we both do. Yeah. She was like, I'm Um, sick of you, John, telling me all your ideas. (laughs) I've got someone that'll listen to you. And she found that person in me. Um, I know I'm, I'm happy to listen to you. Yeah. You got, you got some good ideas. And some of them are just, just fucking terrible. No, that's not true. No, that that um, is one hundred percent true. That's the thing about everyone's ideas suck. It's you know you have to put them into action, and then even then a lot of those suck. But um, yeah, it's it the go. repeated cycle of bad ideas, and then actions, and then hoping that it's good and it's only good like one percent of the time. They say in the, the sobriety community, if it works, work it right. And we're just going to jump right in. Um, Bumper sticker sayings all day are my favorite. I'm a dad. I was a dad <laughs> when I was like five. Well, I want to I want to get to that because I do want to follow my typical format of these shows. But I feel like our conversations can sometimes branch off um, and go in random directions. I'm excited about that part. But yeah, I was actually hoping that you had very strict guardrails for our conversation because... I'm all about tangents. I and yeah. I edit a lot of them out, but I'm all about them. Um, yeah. Well, on that note, let's let's go back in time. You're five, but before that, you're born. Um, and you're in Indiana. Were you born in Indiana? Uh, Ohio. Oh. Might as well be Indiana. <laughs> I don't know if that's a slight on Indiana or Ohio. The Midwest. Um, no, the whole like the pocket in which we inhabit. But you're you're like you got a coastal view up in Michigan. You're like debatable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it depends on where you're at, I guess. Where uh where in Ohio were you born? Um Delaware City, Delaware County. What is that near? What would I know that? Columbus, Columbus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Did you grow up there or were you just there as a kid or uh I was there as a wee lad. I think it was early on that we moved to Indiana. My like... dad's family is from Ohio and my mom's is from Indiana. Oh, okay. So I would imagine there was some push and pull and back and forth. And then I think my father got a job. He worked for a manufacturing facility that did parts for like the B1 bomber. And 
he would always tell us about how he helped build parts for the challenger not the part that caused the explosion <laughs> it's a clarifying point thanks yeah and then that <laughs> job disappeared probably after the facility he worked for built um a space shuttle that blew up <laughs> and killed a bunch of people you know, I'm just, do it. this is the first time i've even made that connection because i haven't thought about it for a long time because no one's cared to ask uh so maybe that was, you know, that's a, that's a good story. We're going to go with that. That's exactly why we moved to Indiana is because my dad sure. was shamed out of his job in Ohio. And then uh, we came back to Indiana where my mom's family's from. And that's was your where, mom working when you were a kid or was she just with home, at home with you? Not until my dad um, had a second life that my mom found about, found okay, out well, about. <laughs> we're, we're hitting a speed bump already. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, do you have siblings? Do you have? Yeah. What, yeah. What's that look like? Um, a brother, full-blooded brother from uh, my mom's first marriage, and then a half-sister, and then a half-brother um, with my dad. And I hesitate to tell people uh, that I have the other half-brother because I've not talked to my dad or my half brother because of a uh, unspeakable tragedy in the family uh, that caused a schism. Okay. So a lot of times during polite conversation, I say, yeah, I've got a brother and a sister, but because this is the podcast and people want the juice. <laughs> so you're, but so you're a younger brother and then uh, you have, I'm the oldest. Oh, you're the oldest. Yeah. And fun fact, uh, my fiance um, is the oldest. My son is the, my son is the oldest, and now my stepdaughter, she is the oldest in her family. So we're a house of four eldest. House of, I don't know. I don't know what. I, I feel like I'm good at youngest because I'm youngest. <laughs> Relatable. Uh, I'm good at middle because my wife's a middle, and I've learned a lot about like some middle child shit. But the oldest, I have so much stigma because <laughs> my brother and me did not get along. Oh, man. Um, Sorry. On behalf of your brother. I've, you know, I've spent a lifetime apologizing, <laughs> apologizing to my brother. What traits would you say you took on as an oldest child? When you look at the family dynamic of my fiance and I, and I'm going to back up a little bit with her story, my story, because there's a lot of overlap. We didn't meet each other until we were 32 at a restaurant. And then um, we had a very serious talk uh, on our like third or fourth date. I was like, I think that it's time that you leave your husband. And oh, she so was like, she oh, was God. married. At yeah, the yeah, time. yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, but as we were like courting one another, we're doing the thing where we're talking about um, our backstory. Her and the the husband that she was with at the time, um, they had lived two blocks down from my dad and I. And I kind of remember checking her out a bunch when I was like driving in and out of Broad Ripple. So we're like in that area. Then we back up a little bit further and found out that we lived in Yorktown, a small town in Indiana together, like down the street from each other when we were kids. And then there was a job that she had and there was a bunch of like, we were very near each other, which maybe isn't that surprising because a lot of people think that even like a lot of people that think they're really connected are really just like kind of like on the outside of their network. Yeah. But we have a lot of similarities. Um, in personality, she has two younger siblings. I have my two younger siblings and we are for lack of a better word, the, the most put together of our siblings. We're the most like, um, 
pretentious <laughs> and organized, but also the angriest. <laughs> you know, we're like um, very serious people, which is, I think a lot of people who know me probably wouldn't, I don't, I actually don't know what people would say as I, I you know, I, I spent seven years doing stand up. And I, I feel like I have a pretty decent sense of humor. Like I don't like seconds after my grandfather died, like a few months ago, my brother and I were like making the most fucked up jokes. And there's that part of me, but I'm like also super serious. And my fiance is very serious and there's all this overlap with us. And I, I, I can't help but think maybe it's because we grew up near each other in these like small, like, um, concentric circles, or yeah. it's just that we're the oldest and we have two younger siblings and there's something about the dynamic. We're like, we're always like the, the trailblazers or whatever. We're like, I feel like I and my fiance take on most of the emotional, like, um, stuff from our family. Like oh, that's interesting. First. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you, well, let, let me ask you this in relation to when does you, when, do, when does your mom find out your dad's fucking around? And has a secret life. Um, How old are you when that happens? Between five and seven. Oh, so that's early. Yeah. What is that? What do you remember that looking like? I mean, you're a kid at the time. So, I mean, yeah. what of that do you understand at the time? And what's what's the full story there? Well, my dad is a, um, a habitual liar, a compulsive liar. Okay. Um all these things are so trendy right now, but like, he's definitely like a grandiose narcissist. <laughs> Lying and in narcissism is so hot right now. I know <laughs> it's so unfortunate, you know? Um, my dad, his father abandoned my grandmother when she was pregnant. I think my dad was aware of this most of his life, if not the whole time growing up or became aware of it later on. Um, so he's like very obvious, especially now that I've distanced myself from my father, that he is just trying to get love and to be accepted. But when your dad leaves you before he even meets you, I can imagine that someone grows up feeling like, holy shit, I'm not good enough for anybody. So then you start building upon that insecurity, right? And you shove the insecurity real, real deep down. And then you start to build this giant conflated ego. Yeah. But deep down, you're still like the insecure little child. So I think I would imagine my dad was never satisfied with the uh, affection he got because you never will be right until you accept and forgive the dad that abandoned you and moved on because you're never going to get the thing you're looking for. So I would imagine that that's what led him to living this other life. He was I know he was 11 years older than my stepmom he's been married with this woman since but it's like habitually cheated on him and they had this whole crazy relationship where they're like i'm surprised they're still together like they basically have an open relationship but it's not like an honest one they take turns cheating on each other and finding out about like the secrets they have sure but i'm gonna try to get back on without getting too derailed um so my dad was 28 hanging out with a 17 year old um i remember meeting this woman several times going on dates with my dad with her, but he'd say they were hanging out and then she would come to the house multiple times. And I remember one time, um, catching my dad kissing this woman. And then he came back to the room and was like, you stay in here and was like pretty upset. And, um, how grotesque can I be? 
I can say whatever, right? Oh yeah. It's this is so gross, but he had lipstick on his mouth, and I remember um, smelling his breath, and I was like, "That's gross." And then I grew up later and realized that his breath smelled like a vagina. That right? is so. What a weird thing to think about the first time that I smelled a vagina on my own. I was like, "Dad." <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a lot to unpack there yeah and well and this know, is all this, pre five yeah five to seven i don't remember the exact age okay. range um yeah. you know i i met like it's so weird that he had me be such a part of this other life and like during the during the whole thing i was like cool dad and i have a secret great um, don't tell my mom about it. Um, don't know why I can't tell my mom about going to these monster truck shows with his friend. Yeah. And a guy that later became my uncle because it was um, my stepmom's younger brother. Um, yeah. Um, and you you said your dad was like 28. Were your parents young when they had you? Yeah. Okay. Um, my mom was 21. Okay. When I was like uh, a couple months old, maybe she was pregnant. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah. I mean, how does that end up exploding in your household? And, and is your brother born at that point? Yeah. My brother and I are three years apart. Okay. Yeah. He doesn't remember, he doesn't remember, um, a lot from my parents being together, if anything. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. so that timeline, I relate to that just cause my brother and me are three years apart and I was four when my parents divorced. So he would have been seven, seven or eight, depending on, I don't know, time of year. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I imagine you have this sectioned off part of your childhood, right? Like this is the, the time with, with mom and dad. And then there's post that, uh, yeah, I don't remember, you know, yeah, I remember the times are segmented. Yes, they definitely are. Um, but it's more like emotion. It's like insanity, confusion, sadness, and then teenagers. So when you say still segmentation. Yeah. And when you said earlier, your dad had secret life. He was, your dad was just carrying on an affair, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He didn't have like kids at that point yet with them. No, okay. no yeah. <laughs> just, just, yeah. just getting my ducks in a row. Um, yeah. Hey, I'm being overdramatic. You know, I'm a storyteller, you know? No, no, no. You're good. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's still, a, I think qualifies as a secret life. Yeah. Um, it's strange to, it's so weird to me to think about, and I don't have kids, but like bringing your kid along, like a risk factor of like, I'm inviting someone that's intricately woven into this other person's life that I don't want to know about this along with these like little outings, which is insane to me. <laughs> and then, uh, the level of what I, it's funny. We were talking about this beforehand, like what you anticipate other people know that you, um, consider common sense yourself is just, but it's like, that's obviously going to fuck up the kid, right? There's no, there's no road <laughs> that ends with that relationship, not being at least fucking tarnished by, yeah. by the, those, those meetings. Um, so that, that's just, that's wild to me. And what does that look like then with like custody and, and how does that all play out afterwards? 
Yeah, I'll explain that. If I get de- derailed, um, bring me back to that I question. Will. So the question was, what does a custody look like? Um, so if I get derailed. I'll pull you back oh, in. Sh- oh, shit. I can't remember what I was going to say. All right. You're already derailed. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, oh, you, you, you know, you we're talking about the common sense of my father. And um, men think with their dicks a lot. And I think that there is this problem in the self-development world. I spend some time in general self-help. I'm like narrowing down my focus to talking about sobriety. Um, but I think that there's this problem where there is a group of people that talk about their dick and their struggle with it and people that don't talk about it. But I think if we're being honest and do you know who Tom Segura is? Yeah. Tom Segura, Christina P, your mom's house podcast, whatever. Don't listen to it ever listen to this exclusively listen to Justin's <laughs> podcast but Christina P said the other day that she doesn't trust comics that don't talk about their dick because the struggle is real you know I- I'm susceptible to this I look back on the beginning of Alexis and I dating and I had pussy haze can you can it's you a, define that <laughs> yeah just when you're stupid and in love and women get that too guys also have it um, women their job is to figure out who is worthy of obtaining me. They have a much higher risk involved with courtship and intimacy. They get pregnant once they have a child. They're going to take care of it for the rest of their life. In most circumstances, my kid's mom is an exception, whole other bag of worms. So when I look back, my dad was just letting his dick do the driving. He's like probably in high school. He is a big, tall white dude, goofy fro, had severe daddy issues, didn't have any confidence, I would imagine. Still has very little confidence. It's all fake from what I can tell. Because um, he's very easy to get mad. You're like, Dad, have you thought about that? And he's like, shut the fuck up. It's like the whole narcissist thing. You can't challenge him. You're either you're, you're someone that's there to boost their ego or you're an enemy. Um, so I would imagine my dad at 28 started to be more attractive to 17-year-old girls. Um, and there was no part of him that was self-aware enough, uh, self-aware enough to be like, why wouldn't girls at 17 like me when I was 17, but they like me now? Oh, because I seemingly have my shit together, but 28 year olds that actually have their shit together, that have families that are like these alpha leaders, they don't have any interest in 17 year old girls because they don't have anything left to prove. Right. Yeah. Like when I talk to an 18 year old girl right now, all I want to do is protect her. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Like, I can't imagine talking to an eight-year-old and being like, you know, it'd be pretty easy to trick you into sleeping with me because it would be. I have no interest in doing easy things. It's so gross to me. But I have like all this empathy for my dad because he was just this sad, scared little boy. When I look at him, I, I picture like my baby photos or his baby photos. Well, I yeah, and, I mean, and say add okay. into that the the culture and like uh, porn essentially, right? Like yeah, the, yeah. that age range is like, they're like, this is, this is ideal. This is what you should be looking for no matter how old you are. Yeah. So what uh, was his porn then? It was probably penthouse playboy. And then dude, my dad was so afraid of me growing up to be a homo. I, I my dad's totally a big old gay boy. I, I, I know he, is. he was so afraid of me growing up to be gay, probably like him. <laughs> uh, but he had like posters of women in swimsuits, like on my wall when I was like a three-year-old, that, four-year-old like, boy. Over, yeah, yeah. And then I remember him teaching me the days of the week, which is so funny. I, the, one of my biggest regrets in my life is like 
I yelled at my son because I, I was trying to teach him the days of the week. And I was like, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So what's the first day? And he'd be like, Friday. I'm like, dude, it's Monday. It's this whole thing. And I remember my dad and I like had this like semi-traumatic experience where like I was afraid and didn't want to say the days of the week. But he brought in a calendar from his garage and it was like women in bikinis. And he's like, if you get the days right, I'll flip to the next one to show you the next. I'm like, it's so fucking weird yeah. to do. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been that person. Like I, that's always been like mildly uncomfortable for me to be around the people that are like, like the stereotypical like auto shop, right? Where it's just like those calendars and like talking about fucking chicks and and, like, I, like I've told, uh, I told my wife this and, and I feel confident in, in it as like a quality of mine. I've never in any memory of mine, nor would I be comfortable doing so commented on like, a woman's body to another guy, like check out that ass. Like that feels so weird. to me. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Like I, I, I look at people, but I, I like to have that conversation, like the objectifying conversation with another guy. Like it just feels really, it feels fucking dirty. Yeah. Um, uh, I used to do that all the time. Yeah. I mean, most men do. <laughs> like, so, I was so uh, deep in the pussy haze with Alexis when we first started dating. And I was like, she is the thing, the one. And I can like try to conceptualize that. I can try to break down the logic of like, they're not being a soulmate and all these things. I get that. But my monkey brain was tricked. uh, And I believe it to be a very strong and real force. But she was someone that I would consider to be my soulmate or a soulmate for whatever reason. Deep in the pussy haze, I was like, I'm not going to fuck this up. And I also, at the point when I met her, like my life was in such turmoil um, that I was like, it's starting to hold myself accountable because I saw that as being the only way out. And I was like, I don't want to look back on this relationship and think I regret anything. So I was like, one of the things I can do is stop objectifying women. Yeah. Um, And not in my defense, but... I was a part of like bartending culture and serving culture. Oh yeah. And women were objectifying men, men objectified women. I was uh, a man whore. Um, I have no idea what the body count is. I was very promiscuous, had a bunch of open relationships, but I was like very open about it. I've cheated a couple times uh, in relationships and was cheated on. But after I got out of like these crazy toxic relationships, by the time I was like 24 or five, I was like, I'm, being flat out honest from from now on if some girls like do you want to just hook up i'm like yes that's the only reason i'm talking right now so i started to develop this like honest but also like objectifying like approach to the world yeah now i no longer do that um i've not talked about a woman's body since i started dating alexis um and it's so going from being someone that was object okay with objectifying the opposite sex and, and same sex for that matter to someone that never talks about anyone's bodies to so much so that it makes me uncomfortable hearing women talking about men's bodies. And it's crazy how pervasive this habit is. And maybe it's just the people I'm around, but I hear women doing it all the time too. It's, it's insane. And it, it's, it's got to create like everything that we do. It's got to create these like little like insecurities and like, yeah, and it's crazy how like you can heal as a collective and as a culture. Right. Um, you asked me to pull you back on track, so I'm going to yeah. ask you how the custody yeah. worked out. With yeah, it. yeah, no, thanks for doing that. 
tangents. Um, so the custody arrangement was every other weekend and maybe Wednesdays. And we did that for a while. And then my mom moved to a small farm town um, and my dad stayed in the city. And then as I uh, got older, I just saw my dad less. Okay. Um, I had friends and didn't want to leave. So I, I, I want to... You've said I, I've written down a bunch of crap I want to follow up with you on, <laughs> but I, I also want to make sure that I don't skip over like any, I don't know, developmental milestones or, or traumatic events that, that have shaped who you are. So, uh, is there anything, you know, like pre graduating high school that <laughs> we should touch on before I ask you a billion questions? Um, grew up in a small farm town. Um, and I feel like a lot of my adult life has been trying to prove to everyone that, uh, I'm not a little scared faggot. And I can say that word because I got called that word literally every day of my life. Where did that like, so I mean, I say that I I'm asking this question cause most of my childhood, like other guys just assumed I was gay. Um, thankfully like not in an aggressive way. Um, but more in like just a matter of fact way, um, like they'd uncomfortably be like, well, you know, you're gay, right? And I'd be like, what? <laughs> um, women too. I, I just kind of gave that off. I think, uh, I don't know. I liked musicals. I was loud. Um, if you want to, if you want to throw some stereotypes out there, I, I definitely fit into some, but what did that look like? Like on your end, have you ever like dissected that? Like, why was that? And Oh, dude, have I dissected that? Have you talked? You've talked to me a few times. Yeah. Well, Keep the guardrails up. You're driving this ship. But yeah, dude, I've dissected that. I actually, um, no cap, complete sincerity, um, thought and still question my sexuality because it was so weird where I was living to be open and accepting. Even still to this day, my mom is like, as of two days ago was going to the school to advocate on behalf of the NAACP. She was advocating for one of the five black kids that live in the town because um, they were getting called the N word and kids on the basketball team were making monkey sounds at them. And then the kid went and talked to the assistant coach. Who's the one of only two black adults in town. And that guy, the assistant coach, the black assistant coach went and told the white head coach and the white head coach gathered all the team together and was like, what are you guys doing tattling on each other? We're all just being boys. You guys are, you guys that are telling are fracturing the, uh, the bond of the team. It's like, what's wrong? Yeah. That's yeah. So that, I mean, that's now. So, well, I mean, 20 years ago, you do live in Mike Pence's state. Um, Dude, there was signs on the, um, there was a senior debate and there were signs everywhere in the school that said Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And I was into athletics um, and stopped athletics because of politics. But I asked the previous head basketball coach, who was a government teacher as well. I was like, what would you do if your son, he had just had a baby. I was like, your son's three months old. You love that more than anything else. What are you going to do if he happens to grow up to be gay? He's like, I would just disown him fucking point blank. So I'm like this person that talks a lot. is very expressive. I dissect things. Yeah which totally is something only homos do. <laughs> that's like not real, but that's what people that don't like talking about their feelings think. And for some reason, my mom, when I was like 
two said question everything and i fucking took that literally too literally yeah um so i thought maybe i am gay because i i don't seem to have a problem with it and when i would get called faggot when i was like in junior and senior year my friends and i would just be like whatever we'd make out with each other and be like you mean like this but i had a girlfriend at the time right like um but i also i got called cat fucker every single day so cat fucker or faggot uh, I don't know which one I prefer. Uh, Catfucker, I think, has a better ring to it. I don't it's, know. It's a, it, it's a much funnier nickname. Is that supposed to be a literal insult? <laughs> so everyone called me Catfucker because my brother told people I had sex with a cat. Oh, that's my brother did that with my dog. <laughs> yeah, but it didn't stick, did it? No. Yeah. <laughs> Lucky you, man. Um, so... <laughs> That, it felt very aggressive. I was like, but it didn't stick, right? Like, who's but, the bigger victim here? No, I mean, but you're you're primed to do something. Like, you're you're in a perpetual state of being bullied, and and it sounds like you turned humor into a defense mechanism, which is pretty pretty standard. I feel like, but yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's a lot. Like. And I relate to that being that, like, I didn't feel safe at home and then I didn't feel safe at school because kids were just fucking mean and, like, thankfully that improved. But I was just recently looking back on high school because my buddy gave me a bunch of these pictures and it's so fucking blurry to me. Like, I did a whole blog post on it because I was just, like, I was constantly in a state of, like, someone's going to find me out and, like, I'm going to... Like, I was never comfortable being safe you know like i my friends were only my friends as much as i'd let them be because uh, at any point they could turn on me and like really hurt me if i gave them enough information about myself you know mm -hmm. and so i was constantly on edge in that way which like so it's no surprise that as soon as i you know 17 18 found like alcohol and weed i was like oh okay cool <laughs> like, it's like the warm blanket i hear people <laughs> talk about that a lot it's like someone came and put a warm blanket on you yeah uh, and it also like you know traditionally it, it's a really easy way to fit in with with a crowd is is through that but i mean what other than comedy or was comedy because you mentioned that's another follow-up i want to do <laughs> you said you did stand up for seven years i mean was comedy the defense mechanism that you like turned into something or like what did that look like yeah you know when i reflect on it You know, I used to think I was special because I was funny, but like you just pointed out, it's um, it's a very common trait of people that don't want to like expose themselves. Yeah, not everybody's funny that has a comedy as a yeah. defense mechanism. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> <laughs> um, be honest. You know, it's all like a, a a search for validation or you know the love from a parent, and for some reason, I figured out that me being goofy and funny, while was you know it was. It, irritating to everyone around me it was also like the thing that kept attention on me in a way that wasn't like a serious um reflection uh or a serious uh dissection of who i was and if i could pe keep people like irritated and annoyed or keep them laughing they would never actually like look at me and dissect who i am because they're busy being distracted so i feel like i probably understood that on some like i don't know intellectual level yeah, and, and you said the magical word, which is, is validation. And I mean, 
a lot of what you're saying makes me want to just like project my own theories on myself onto you because I, I relate to a lot of it. But I mean that when you talk about you know like fucking a bunch of people and um, comedy and like all of it comes from a place of like if someone's giving you something that's telling you you're good enough or you're worthy or whatever that looks like, you're going to latch onto that. And whether that's laughing at a joke or fucking you, like that's something you're going to latch onto because they're providing you with a feeling that you're unable to provide for yourself. Does that sound right? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to cry. Oh, that's, <laughs> I mean, that's like, that's me. That's what I learned about myself. I was like, Oh, um, that's funny. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's not, but what, uh, what do you do after high school? Do you go right into college? Is that on the radar? Is no college wasn't on the radar. I was in a band and we were going to make it. Yes. What kind of music? Uh, pop punk. <laughs> I, I need to find this band and listen to it. Um, I've tried to find, you only had one album and you know, looking back on it, uh, I was too afraid to like lean into my strengths, but now I do like marketing and advertising and make videos for people. And I'm like doing this whole like self brand. I was always the one in the band that like did the stickers, did the website, reached out to people on MySpace, invested the money in the recording equipment. Um, so I thought that we would be a band and make it. Yeah. And then our, uh, the singer of the band started doing meth. And then, uh, the drummer and I kept fighting um, and I wasn't, I would, if, if I would have spent as much time practicing my instrument as I did marketing our band, I probably would have found a fit in a, another band. Can I tell you guys something? People are always asking me, Justin, how do I help the show? How do I support the show? And I'm like, Hey, just by asking that you're already supporting the show. And they say, Justin, no, you dummy financially how do i financially support the show well you can support our sponsors like well-being brewing get some cbd water some non-alcoholic beer you can support the show directly by heading over to patreon.com slash friend request pod it's literally it's a dollar and nine cents a month you can hang out with a community of people that also support the show and Help me with some of these pesky hosting fees that I pay every freaking month. So head over to patreon.com slash friend request pod or wellbeing brewing slash friend request or better help slash friend request. You know, anything. Always a fan of people that want to help support what we're doing here. So thank you for that. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. Uh, so quit the band. Uh, we had this like record deal thing where we were going to go to Florida. So I was like, I'm not going to college doing the record deal. And that uh, became convoluted and we had a, a schism there. Uh, yeah, so then I do that. <laughs> yeah. So then I moved from Columbus, Indiana to Indianapolis, Indiana. I lived with my dad. Oh, in the meantime, I got a tattoo knowing that my mom would kick me out of the house if I got a tattoo came home said got a tattoo but i'm moving in with my dad probably moved in with my dad because i didn't spend a lot of time with him growing up and i was like this is how i get love now this is how i get the validation tried some bands um 
in the city um, had not touched alcohol or weed until after I graduated high school. So I started getting really into marijuana, not so much alcohol um, when I moved to the city. Um, broke up with my long-term girlfriend, uh, girl um, first everything with from like 15 to 18. Traumatic, crazy split up, probably took me a decade to recover from, if I'm being honest. Yeah. And then I was doing a lot of cocaine and was really late to work at a grocery store by really late. I mean like eight days late. I don't know why they didn't fire me. They kept calling. I was like, yeah, I'll be there later. And on the eighth day I went to work four hours late and on the walk up to clock into the grocery store, found a handbag, had some cash in it, had a giant diamond ring. Um, probably could have turned into lost and found, but I convinced myself that I, if I turn it into lost and found, it's such a big ring that they're going to keep it. So I went to Reese Nichols and got an insurance claim ran on it. Um, no, no hits popped up. I could have dude. I feel so bad cause I could have just gave it to the desk, but I was like, why did someone have this cash and take the ring off and put it in a bag? Made up all these stories really yeah. is just coming off a of coke. Rationalization, baby. Yeah. $800 in the bag and then sold that ring for $22,505. Wow. That is which a is big ring. <laughs> big ring. Uh, dude, I hope that lady was going through a divorce and she was like, fuck that ring. <laughs> but that that's one of the first things that happened in my life where I'm like, oh, I just have to live with that forever. <laughs> so if that lady, every time I show this story, if you're listening, I'm sorry. If I get rich and famous, I will cut you a check. Um. So then I take that money from the ring. I moved to Oregon. Um, in the process of moving to Oregon, um, I eat LSD for the first time at Burning Man. Um, you, so you're went, leaning in hard. You're like, this is the lifestyle. <laughs> dude, everything in my life, it's like that, right? Uh, then I live in Oregon for a little bit, do some cocaine. The Coke dealer says, hey, dude, I you got to stop. Like, I can't sell to you anymore. I'm like, fuck this guy. I meet some hippies that happen to go to high school with one of my friends from Indiana. And they're like, hey, we're going to go just drive. Do you want to go? So I get rid of my apartment in Oregon. Buy How a old are you bus, at this point? 19, 20. Okay. okay. I buy a school bus in Colorado, live on the school bus for about five, six months. Um, just do a lot of like uppers in Iowa, basically. Uh, then I go from having the bus, selling the bus, getting a van, living in a van, and then joining a hippie cult gang of people called the rainbow family of living light. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a friend that was possibly a family member. <laughs> yeah. So I was a family member for a while, ran out of money. Um, remember being, um, down to my last $11 after that $22,000 took me about six months to go through. Um, and I spent, my last $11 on uh, two pieces of pizza and two big red stripes. And I was absolutely broke, not a penny to my name for the first time in my li adult life, young, very young adult life. And I took a drink of a red stripe and at the rainbow family uh, of living light, there's two camps. There's a camp, which is all the alcoholics. And then there's the rest of the camp where the people that are like, you can do every drug except for alcohol, which kind of makes sense, honestly. <laughs> So I was in the camp where you couldn't drink alcohol, hadn't had a beer for like a week. And I took a drink of this red stripe in this gas station parking lot with the rest of my money that I'd spent down to zero. Very, very anxiety ridden. Um, and it felt warm. And I was like, yeah, I don't 
I don't, I don't need money or a house. I'll just get alcohol. And, um, I don't know. I'm connecting a lot of dots for the first time. Um, <laughs> and I'm trying to consolidate this story as much as possible. So bring in the guardrails. This, guard is, this is fantastic. I've <laughs> so I, I, from talking, so I have expunged my record. I've been arrested fucking too many times to count in that, that time. Uh, most every arrest was alcohol related and okay. almost all of them had to do with my kid's mom that I ended up meeting later down the road in San Francisco. Um, but like, I never really dabbled into alcohol a lot until I met my kid's mom in San Francisco. I spent all this time like traveling around with the family. And I said the thing about getting my record expunged because I was talking to a lawyer recently because I'm like, I'm going to start sharing more of my story. And he's like, there's a lot of stuff you can't share because <laughs> if you were never charged for it. Yeah, there's so you got to look up. I've looked up statute of limitations on stuff like I wrote a memoir about the two years I lived in L.A. And I was like Googling statute of limitations on certain things. I was like, can I talk about this? Um <laughs> I think if you've never been charged for a lot of stuff, you, you, you can get in trouble. Like the, the orange is the new black that I can't remember the whole story with that person. So I'll just say this for the savvy listener, tomato sandwiches. They're great. <laughs> you can sell them at concerts and you can sell two sandwiches for $10 a piece, or you can sell three for 20 or you can sell 10 for 80. Sure. Magical tomato sandwiches. Yeah. Right. They're the best in the hippie community. Uh -huh. Like you eat them. And you want to dance. Yeah. And some, for some reason they make you see a bunch of colors. Yeah. Colorful right? sandwiches. They make life vivid. Technicolor. <laughs> I, I got very, very proficient. It was my first business outside of music. And I was really good at it. Um, and I did that for a long time. Yeah. So I don't, I don't even remember what you asked me. I think I'm just always waiting to tell this epic story, honestly, which but is kind it, of selfish. So when do you end up in San Francisco? How old are you then? uh 22 okay 21 so 22. this is just like an explosion time like three or four years where you're just like let me see what i can accomplish that both qualifies as uh super fun and super self-destructive yeah and you know i i read jack kerouac's on the road when i was like 16 or 17 yeah um books i was like writing chapter books like in third and fourth grade um, because I was into goosebumps. Like I always liked writing, always liked reading, right? Re reading and writing was like a safe place for me before I found booze and drugs. Um, and it's funny. I never told people I was a writer until I started doing booze and drugs. And I literally only wrote bad poetry when I was doing drugs. There's the yawn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, inspired by Jack Kerouac. And I also, you know, the thing I loved the most growing up was people's stories, right? It's a very human thing, but I was like, I want to be a storyteller and I want to have stories. Yeah. Yeah. So kind of setting myself up for chaos for a while. Yeah. That's, I mean, I'm almost thankful that I didn't get into reading. Cause I wonder, I already had this psychotic imagination and, and, uh, desire to do random crap. And I just wonder, like when I think of, when I hear people talk about like, uh, Kerouac and Tchaikovsky and I'm like what I have just leaned in much earlier <laughs> to to all the all the bad shit just like yeah. really leaned into the struggling tortured artist alcoholic um yeah I don't know we'll never know but so you get to San Francisco you meet uh you meet a woman you bartend. It was not bartending. Oh, um, 
from the time that I left Oregon until the first time I got arrested with my kid's mom, I only had one real job. And I got a real job because I had the job selling tomato sandwiches yeah. with the tomato sandwich mafia. Um, and I can say some of this. I, I, I was a distributor for marijuana in California, too, in addition to tomato sandwiches. Yeah. Um, and I would like drive and transfer things back and forth up and down the coast, never outside of California, because that would be not okay. So doing some weed distribution, uh, going up to like Humboldt County and stuff, um, getting trimmings, making hash, uh, going to these random like um, marijuana judging competitions and festivals. And then on Hippie Hill in San Francisco one day, um, meet uh, this guy, a train hopper, tall Indian alcoholic guy covered in tattoos named Gook. And he had a girl with him. Um, and she was tall and wore makeup, which made her one of a kind in the community I was in. And the guy said, you can talk to John. He's the only guy you can talk to here because he's gay. And I was like, yep, that's me. Gay as hell. Um, and then I started hanging out with her the next morning. Uh, she stayed in my hotel that night. And then the next morning, uh, I was like, what do you want to do? She's like, let's go get a six pack. So we went and got Budweiser. I was drinking beer with breakfast. And I remember my, my buddy, shameless John that I was living in a van with, um, you know, between hotels and living in his van that had couches and dogs. Uh, he was like, what are you doing, man? He's like, you're not, you're not that kind of drinker. You're not, a, you're not a fucking alcoholic. And I was like, I'll show you. Uh, but I was like, yeah, I was like, I like drinking beer for breakfast. And he's like, you literally never do that. And I'm not blaming all of this on my son's mom. Yeah. But that's the kind of drinker she was, uh, honestly still is. Um, and it's very sad to see, especially the more I distance myself from that lifestyle. But we left San Francisco together uh, because she was like, I need to go back to Florida. And I was like, that's where I'm going. Totally, li- totally a lie. I mean, <laughs> I guess it wasn't because I had no no plan. Yeah. So I was it like, wasn't yeah, that's where you now. weren't going. <laughs> <clears throat> but I swear to you, the second we got in Florida, all of the Florida came out in her. Fist fights, craziness, chaos. Within three months, I had my first serious arrest, was on probation. Um, but she was so problematic that I could not continue working with the tomato sandwich mafia weed distributors because she would blow up every scene. She would just get drunk and scream and was like, she was 6'2 and liked to fight people. Yeah. And I was like, that's who I'm going to have a child with. <laughs> Why not? You want this epic story of a life, John? <laughs> you know, you can like cure cancer or you can be a drug addict. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Um, so what, what is the road of like, I don't know, having, do you guys have the kid in Florida? Like I'm assuming it was not a planned situation. Not definitely not, not a planned. Um, and then, and what I say, and then as a weird, and then so not planned, found out she's pregnant, and then a bunch of stuff happened, chaos in my life every day. Don't know where I'm going to sleep. We're in a room for rent, um, and there was a fight that happened between us, and she just started doing the thing she did, screaming and throwing things, and I'm like, stop doing this. She blew up the spot that we were in again. Um, the police came, and we were both on probation from a previous arrest. And she was like, hey, he didn't do anything. I was just screaming. 
And they're like, well, you're both on probation. So in Florida, the rule is if the cops get called out and you're on probation, you have to go to jail. But they're like, we'll cut you a deal because there's two of you. We'll only take one of you. I said, take me. So we're driving to the police station and they're like, as they're putting me in cuffs, they're like, we're going to charge you with um, kidnapping. Because when you guys were fighting, you were standing by the door and you were blocking the only exit. So I was upset. Um, Obviously, the cop, I remember he was like, do you know why I arrested you today, Mr. Coon? And I said, because you got beat up in high school. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, fuck you. You're a smart ass. He's like, I was going to let you talk to your mom because she's calling you right now. I was like, I'm so sorry. He let me talk to my mom. And I talked to him for a while. And he's like, dude, he's like, I'm going to tell you like straight up. He's like, I think it's fucking stupid. Those other cops charge you with kidnapping. But what you're getting ready to go into, they're going to put you in a holding cell in a holding container because in Florida, it's like you stay in jail while you wait to go to prison. Yeah. If you're going to go to prison. So I spent the next uh, couple months in this like, it's like 10 to 12 cells with people with similar charges to me. So if you can imagine going to jail for kidnapping, I was in there with people that had done some of the most heinous things that humans do. Um, and then in that time, uh, I had gotten wind that my son's mom had failed a drug test while she's pregnant and on probation. I think she went to try to get me out and be like, Hey, he shouldn't have a kidnapping charge. So I get out of jail. Um, and dude, it's tr- I'm, I'm still actually, actually trying to get this off my record because I was never actually charged with anything. That cop that was like, Hey, um, I know you're giving me a hard time about getting beat up in high school, but like, you're a good dude. Like you, there's a fucking better way yeah. and I'm going to erase this. When I went to court, there was like no paperwork like for the, the kidnapping, but the charge still appears, but I was never convicted of anything. It's so weird. Uh, but I get out and then I start, you know, my new life where I'm like, well, I'm going to be a dad. And, um, uh, I just started working two jobs. I still drink a lot because my kid's mom was in jail and I was like, woo, vacation before freedom. <laughs> But in this weird way, like I took being and a dad she's very pregnant seriously. in jail. Yeah, she spent her entire pregnancy in jail except for the last three weeks. Uh, but I was like, I have to get my shit together. Um, and I was trying to do it with her. And I, I, in all honesty, I don't think it was possible. Like, uh, it's so weird that we were drawn to each other. I remember all the time she'd be like, "Why do you think you're better than people? Because you read." And I wanted to go to college, and she'd always sabotage me trying to go to college. Not playing the victim role. It's totally my fault. I was in that relationship. But when she was in jail, I was like, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to go back and I work two jobs. And then she got out of jail. We had a kid together. And then within like five or six months um, of having a child, she was back on the sauce going real hard and got arrested again. And then during that time, when she got arrested, when my son was five months old, uh, I was in Florida still and I saw a window and I um, uh, dropped as many college classes as I could. And then I petitioned for custody of my son. And I've had custody of my son since he was six months old. Been living in Indiana. How old is he now? He's thirteen. So, I mean, what what does that next few years look like? You're just working and, and raising yeah, a kid. Um, working and raising a kid. Um, <clears throat> when do you get into comedy? He, my son, was like three or four. Maybe was he was a little bit younger than that. Um, and I was just, I was like playing poker, um, at night. My, I lived with my brother and, um, um, 
I think a girlfriend, maybe two girlfriends in the course of like five years. And then I would um, work at out, out, not Applebee's. I would work at Outback Steakhouse or Red Lobster or whatever the restaurant was at the time. And I would go out and play poker um, at like American Legions and like casinos and kind of just hustle together money the best way that I could. Stop going to college and then fell kind of in this like hole of uh, thinking that I had no skills and no way out for a long time, honestly, until a few years ago. Um, but comedy was an act of desperation. I thought that maybe if I would be funny enough that I would become like a famous comedian that made money. Cause I just ultimately just wanted to like make a hundred thousand dollars a year, make $80,000 a year, whatever the number was and take care of my, my kid. And since I had no real skills because I had dropped out of college, I just thought I'll try a standup. And then I fell in love with going and seeking validation from strangers and rarely getting it because you know you're really bad at it for a long time yeah i mean well you said you did it for like seven years yeah maybe five years um that's a long time to do something that you're not getting a response about yeah well i I started i started getting responses towards the end um and i stopped doing it um mostly because my son got older and i wanted to be home with him at night but the thing I didn't even think about what stand-up actually looked like going into it. Well, cause you were in Indianapolis this whole time. Like, were you going to Chicago to do it or what? Yeah. All of the cities like around uh, Chicago, uh, um, um, places in Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee. Okay. Um, a lot of it was just like DIY shows. Like I, I remember the owner of crackers comedy club, which is like a iconic, iconic comedy club in Indianapolis. She's like, you're really funny and you got good stage presence and you're attractive. I was like, hell yeah, <laughs> that's awesome to hear. Uh, and she's like, but you're trying to be a storyteller. And I was like, yeah. She's like, are you thinking ever about just doing jokes? And I was like, uh, no. And she's like, well, good luck with that. <laughs> um, but I stuck to the stories and I was doing like book, book stores and coffee houses. And then the part of me that's always been an organizer and a planner, I started organizing my own shows and like running shows and getting all of the love that I wanted from my dad that I never got. Um, and then this writer for the Bob and Tom show was like, Hey, come out on the road with me and open for me. And I said, no, cause I was like, I'm not going to do that. And I was like, wait a second. That's what I'm working for. <laughs> I'm so fucking stupid, dude. Like it took me five years to be like, you're working towards something that you don't actually want, you know? So, if you're thinking about starting a business and you're this deep into this podcast and you're like, what's the move? Think about what it's going to look like five years down the road, because you may starting a business out of desperation is fine, but you got to think, think ahead. If you've never started a business or a project, I think a lot of people don't have a way to zoom out and look at, look at what it's going to look like years from then or years, years from that point. Now, a lot of people build businesses because they think it's a good way to make money or it's like some passion. They don't think about what it looks like and they actually end up building a, a prison cell for themselves instead of like freedom. So like I could have said yes and gone on the road and not saw my son or had him go back with his mom. What's that relationship look like um, over the last 13 years? <laughs> I've talked to her maybe four or five times. She lived with me for a few months when my son was five or six and I got her, I didn't try. I got her a job and she got fired. I got another job and she got fired from that. And there was a moment where I was like, maybe we'll get back together. Um, and very quickly I was like, even though like I was like drinking way too much and was like fat and like had a shitty job, I 
progressed far enough down like the self-development like chain yeah. or the trail that I was like, dude, you're in trouble. Um, so I drove her back to, I drove her to the airport and take her, taking her back home. And she had like, she pulled out this like bottle of like Sutter home, like white Zen and was drinking it. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? And she had alcohol in her cup and had like seven bottles of this. And I'd already drank four of them, which is the equivalent of a big bottle of wine. Yeah. I was like, man, I feel so I share that. And it's like random. Um, but I, I it's so hard to watch people that you love or that are in charge of people you love suffering. But anyway, she left after we were together for like three or four months. Um, after my, my son was five and we had lived together for three or four months. I dropped her back off at the airport and I was like, you have to go. I was like, I can't help you get up to Indiana. Cause I was trying to help her the whole time. I was like, you should be near our son. Like he needs us around. I was like, I'm not going back down to where your family's at because it's crazy. Town. It's like, I'm not welcome there. Yeah. Right. And dude, years went by and I'd be cleaning the house and I would find pills or like random bottles of alcohol stashed all around my house from the few months that she stayed with me. Um, so very clearly she has a problem with addiction. I have one. Um, and I don't think it's my place to tell her that she has a problem, but sometimes I want to, um, like even like, Six months ago, my son was in Florida and called me frantically in the middle of the night because mom and boyfriend were fighting and the police were there. And now she's mad at my son and is refusing to fly him down to visit with her because he he ratted her out to the police. So he still sees her. Yeah, he hasn't seen her. He didn't see her this last Christmas break. Um, and I don't know if he'll see her this summer. So I'll, it'll be interesting to see how the next four or five years play out because he's getting older and... I'm going to start taking him to Al-Anon meetings just so he can learn. I'm sure there's parts of my personality that he has to learn to deal with, yeah. even though That's I'm like gotta, recovered or whatever. I mean, what's that like as a dad, like seeing, you know, your, your, your kid have this somewhat a strange relationship with the, with his mother. And, you know, it's hard to not blame myself for just being so dumb and having a child with the first person that would consistently sleep with me for a few months. Yeah. Um, so I beat myself up. Um, but you know, there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Like I, you know, I, 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 I'm a fan of stoic philosophy. One of like the biggest principles in that is to like, not worry about shit. You can't do anything about like, like accept, accept your lot in life. If you're born a slave, you're born a slave. There's nothing you can do about it. Right. Um, so I'm in this position. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, I can't do anything about having the child with her, but what I can do and what I've started doing more is like taking my role as a parent seriously, more serious. Um, and understanding that there is no amount of me telling him to live a certain way. That's going to work. Yeah. The only chance that I can teach him things about life in a meaningful way is to just show him and lead by example. Yeah. So that's kind of what the last like two years have been. Well, I'm at, at risk of jumping over the, the video production stuff, like let's fast forward to the, to that, like the last few years. And I guess some of the stuff that you've been doing, uh, like online and making and like figuring out that you want to do the videos and the marketing and, um, combined with the decision that like from an outside perspective seems like almost like you accepted a dare to like not drink for a year. And I wonder if, reflecting back on that you're like was that what it was or was it like kind of an excuse to 
like publicly be like, I'm not going to drink and, and feel like it's okay to do that? Um, I just asked you nine questions. Sorry. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, you're all good. You did. I'm notorious for that. No, it's okay. I can handle it. Um, I've the part of me that wants attention and validation. It's very much there. It's baked in, but storytelling I think is also a gift and I'm trying to embrace that in a uh, humble way with some humility. And the only way I've found to approach storytelling in a humble uh, um, way with some humility and some grace is to understand that I can be a vessel to help people. I don't know who said it, but this is one of those bumper stickers sayings kind of, it's like, if you go to hell and you survive and you're lucky enough to come back, it's your job to get on the next boat back to hell and get as many people on the boat as possible. So I've been to hell. I put myself there and I'm working on getting out. So I need to go back and save as many people as possible. But I started doing YouTube and putting my name out there after comedy um, in a real way. Cause I saw that people were making money on YouTube and I thought this will be a, this will be a quick way to make a hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, spoiler alert still hasn't happened. Um, uh, <laughs> I've got some forward momentum in progress, but in this really real and profound way, me wanting to help people and to help myself and to create a brand for myself saved my life. I started putting these videos out on YouTube. I started gravitating towards self-help. Um, like Gary Vaynerchuk probably helped me from keeping, he, he prevented me from killing myself. I, 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 and I'd say that in all sincerity, like I was very desperate at, at one point in my life. I was like, what do I do? I have no skills. I had just quit doing comedy. I started dating this amazing woman who was making enough money that I could stop working in a restaurant. And I was going to be a stay at home dad for a while. She's like, stop working in the restaurant. Um, it's affecting our trust in our relationship because I was very much someone that talked about girls asses and their tits and big dicks and slept with married women. (laughs) So she's like, I know that's what you're doing there. And I was like, well, that's not what I'm doing. I promise you. But she's like, look, I can afford for you to quit. Stay at home. So I stayed at home as desperate, got online, found Gary Vaynerchuk, Stumbled across a guy named Peter McKinnon who was teaching people about cameras. I had a background in doing camera stuff from when I was in a band and did production multimedia in high school. So I started chipping away at that and I made a YouTube video and I was like, hey guys, we're going to get better together here. I was doing all these things that I thought would get me attention. And then at some point it clicked with me. I was like, if I'm going to actually help people, I have to talk about what my biggest problems are and solve those. And then as I solve them, I can retroactively share the things I've learned. So then I did 30 days of no boozing because I was going to do every 30 days, make a video. I did 30 days of no booze. I did 30 days of no sugar. I did 30 days of something else. And none of these videos were clicking in the algorithm. And then I woke up one day and had a few hundred views on a, I quit drinking uh, for 30 days video. That video has got a couple thousand views now, nothing crazy or earth shattering, but it was, it was, and still is huge for me. So it was like, there's really something to this. And then I was like, you know what? People probably, and I see this all the time in marketing, like you can't fake being vulnerable. And sometimes the things where people are being super vulnerable work the best online. You can spend $10 million on a Super Bowl commercial and it won't hit with someone the way that someone's sitting down with a webcam and saying, 
I lost my brother to suicide, which I did not, but I'm just giving you an example. Yeah, yeah. I lost my brother to suicide and I'm very lonely. And I'm 35 and have no friends. That strikes a, cr- a chord with enough people that that shit will get picked up in the, the algorithm and go viral. So I'm like, okay, I'm stumbling into being vulnerable. And it's because I've honestly not liked consuming alcohol. I started consuming alcohol and it felt safe and warm and was a nice escape. And it made me feel like I was getting the love that I've so desperately been seeking my entire life. So I started talking about that more and sharing, and that's been working on YouTube for me. Um, and I'm going to keep diving into that. Um, but the alcohol for a year dare thing, yeah. um, it wasn't a dare or a challenge. Like I'd quit drinking several times for 30 days, documented it once. And that seemed to work. Yeah. So like the part of me that wants attention and wants his business to work was thinking, well, this will work. But another part of me that's like just trying to be a human and be the best version of myself that I can for my family my children and my community was like drinking isn't the answer. I'd been writing notes to myself on my um, iPhone in the morning, hungover, just taking these nastiest craps on Saturday and Sunday morning. Like, John, why do you keep doing this to yourself? Why do you keep drinking? So like this whole time, like this sober curious person is like building in me. Yeah. The person that knows the next step is to probably ditch the booze. It doesn't make any sense, no matter how much I try to conceptualize it. The whole like trying to find balance thing doesn't fucking make sense to me. And we can unpack that can of worms. <laughs> So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to quit drinking for a year because the videos that are doing the best on my YouTube are me talking about drinking. So it's kind of a selfish move. But I was like, there's something here and everyone else can see that I'm having a problem and I'm being vulnerable. So I thought, what if I don't do it for a year? That thought fucking terrified me. And it's like, that's a real thing. And if I want to help other people, I have to help myself first. And if I don't do this for a year, that will help me probably the most. And then whatever I learn in that year, I can share with other people. Yeah, and that's how you build an internet business, right? You solve problems for people. I mean, that, that's I mean, that's what you did. <laughs> so that like that year was just up. I mean, what 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 do you what are your big takeaways from being sober for a year, dude? So uh, so much. <laughs> um, what they say if you want to, um, you want to go to the bumper sticker sayings for this segment. Hang on a second. <laughs> oh, he's getting out bumper stickers. No, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> What they, if you want to find out why you use, stop using. Yeah. Um, I've since abandoned the model of doing 30 day experiments. Maybe I'll bring it back. I can't figure out a way to make them, um, tantalizing enough for the, the algorithm. They're t- too much work, but I did like a, a 30 day of meditation for an hour a day and day four or five, like I just broke down and started crying. Like, I, I had a psychedelic experience without drugs and I was like, holy shit, all of that stuff is always going on in the background. Yeah. If you want to find out what's really driving you sit alone with your thoughts, you know, blaze Pascal said all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit quietly in a room with his thoughts. That sounds like a quote from like the sixties or the nineties, right? That's a 2000 year old quote. Yeah. So our inability to sit with ourselves. It's and been around for a long time. Home, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> So I was like, oh shit, there's a lot of shame there, like a ton of shame. And I don't like who I am. And alcohol is a way for me to be okay with that. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing I learned. Um, and I can, I can talk to you about this on the podcast if you, if you want, but I'm getting ready to record a video after lunch today for the YouTube channel 
I think I'm going to title it getting sober won't solve all of your problems or getting sober won't solve any of your problems. Probably sounds the most like triggering and it will solve a lot of your problems, but it's really only going to solve your drinking and your substance problem. And substance abuse is like the tip of the iceberg. So imagine you're someone that doesn't understand what an iceberg is and you just see this tip. How fucking surprised are you the first time that you realize the iceberg is actually, you know, it's what you're seeing is 10%. And I think a lot of people after they get out of that pink cloud phase where they feel really good just because they stopped doing something that's so hard because they've made a habit of drinking, they get to the mundane and then the mundane leads to anxiety and fear and insecurity and all these things that are always playing in the background that you've learned to numb with consumption. So all of that stuff was there for the last year and I wasn't able to hide from it. I had to like learn to be okay with myself and I'm still not there. I'm bit, but I'm getting better at it. It's a long road. And and I I think you point out something that I, I constantly... And one of the reasons I couldn't do like lead sober groups anymore is um, <laughs> it's a weird thing to say going into the field I'm going into, but it's, I can't, I find it very frustrating to sit there and um, listen to people talk about like how every day is hard when you know that all they did was quit drinking, right? They didn't actually address anything else. They didn't think about like the reason why they were drinking to begin with or anything. They just like, removed the substance um and didn't you know like that's obviously i'm a big advocate for therapy and that's like one of the things like yeah you got to work through like there's some shit there right like yeah there's there's genetics and there's dopamine and there's receptors and like yeah all that shit exists but also like there's an underlying emotional uh intellectual existential reason for a lot of that but i digress um i um you know, going back to what you just said about the people are just talking about the drinking problem and not all the other problems. Um, I adopted this mindset of everything is my fault all the time. Everything, everything that happens to me is my fault. And can I do something about it? And if the answer is yes, then I fucking, I've been trying to figure out what it is I can do about yeah. it. And if the answer is no. Then I just let that shit go. But like, me adopting that mindset is the only way I've been able to progress. And I'm not just stuck on like talking about sobriety 24 hours a day because there's other problems I want to solve. Yeah. God damn it. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, well, that, I mean, that brings us current and you have a bunch more stories I could talk to you about, but we'll, we'll save that for another time. Um, is there anything I didn't mention that you wanted to cover or thought we would cover? No, I'm, tr- I'm just really, when you ask me that, I'm like, did I talk too much? Was I crazy? Was I all over the place? So that's another thing I'm going to work on. <laughs> I think I shared enough of um, a story arc. Yeah. No, I... You know, like I said, I've been to hell. I put myself there and I'm working my way out. And I think that there is power in that story. Um, and I say that with some trepidation because I don't want to put myself on a pedestal. I don't want to like... There he is yawning again. You got, you can't see, see this I guy, shouldn't have said it. Justin is the most, Justin is the most. That's the, <laughs> that's the catch 22 is if I mention it, it gets called out. And if I don't mention it, it'll happen at some terrible time. The next disclaimer is don't mention it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, share your story, share your struggle. You don't have to make a business out of it. Like I'm trying to do, but, um, the thing I learned from comedy, um, was that oversharing actually is very empowering. Like sharing everything that you think is the biggest like thing that is like the worst thing that you do. I found out online that I'm not the only cat fucker. There's a few cat fuckers in a few random towns. 
that's the best thing and the worst thing about the internet. Like you can find people that have weird stories or are, are into the same weird things as you. Right. right? And then the collective weirdness grows, but um, your vulnerabilities, your vulnerabilities are your strength. Uh, so I think we shared a lot of vulnerabilities and hopefully it's empowering to somebody, yeah. you know, I think so. Yeah. I think you got, you got a good story. And I think the, take away my favorite word which i feel like i should just get a fucking poster of and put on my wall when i am a therapist is just validation because like it's it plays such a pivotal role in, in a lot of people's lives whether it's how we provide that for ourselves or how we go after it from other things and i think that's play that that seemed like an interwoven theme throughout so it will ruin your life and it'll ruin your business like a lot of what i do is um I have to come up with prices for jobs and it's very easy to say a low enough price that I know someone will just say yes to because I'm addicted to the feeling of validation. Okay. You'll give me yeah. work. You'll give me money to do the yeah. job, but you can't, you cannot attach yourself worth to like outcome. now you're, now you're bleeding no into how, the Leslie Bailey episode. <laughs> yeah. That was my, that's why I know that episode number I've quoted it so many times to people because that was my big takeaway from her. She talked about like knowing, what to ask for for your creative like worth and being okay that some people aren't going to fucking pay it because <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. hard um yeah yeah well i'm gonna i'm gonna stop this recording okay Pew. you and i have lots in common my request is sent would you like to be my friend All right, you just listened to my interview with John Kuhn. You know, I love people that don't, I don't want to say don't hold back. I don't know. Don't censor themselves so much. And I was intrigued with the the sandwich mafia. And if you guys go back and listen to episode 31 with B. Casper, I don't know. I think there's some similarities there. It's neither here nor there, but I really enjoyed this story and I love what John's doing. You guys got to check out his YouTube channel. He's doing so much cool shit and documenting it, uh, in ways that like anytime I can see a guy showing like raw vulnerability in a positive way that is allowing for others to interact and be vulnerable and explore their own experiences and emotions. I got to get behind that. And that is what John's doing on a regular basis. He is all over the interweb. So find him on Instagram, YouTube, check it out. Links in the show notes, links in the blow notes. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love me some John Coon. He's going to text me after he listens to this. Are you texting me now, John? crazy how meta all right i'm gonna go but i'll talk to you guys next week thanks for listening bye bye i love you